The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, as you know, if you know anything about Thessalonians, you know it's a, church, it's a letter written to a very young church. In fact, Paul was only there for a short period of time. It sounds like just weeks. And then he was driven out of Thessalonica, and he writes a letter back to them very soon because he wants to give them instructions as young believers. And in chapter 5, this is one of those parts of Scripture where you think, well, there's just these just line upon line of, of instructions and you wonder if, if there's anything here you can even put this together in some way but what he does in verses 12 and 13 he tells them how they should respond to leaders in the church in verses 14 and 15 what our response to one another should be and then finally in verses 16 through 18 which we're going to look at our response to circumstances how are we supposed to respond to the circumstances of life especially when they're not what we really want It's not what we actually would have chosen to take place, but this is how we're to respond. Um, Somebody has said that prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. Now, the the one reason that we should pray, the the reason that's going to keep us praying throughout all eternity, I don't know if you've thought about this, but... In, in the future when we are enter into the presence of Christ, when the kingdom of God comes to earth and we're in the presence of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, what are we going to pray about? You won't have any needs. And it seems like in this present situation, that's usually what precipitates prayer. But the only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. And when we pray, we seek His face. Um, and the, the transforming prayer that is in this passage, I think, is really helpful to us. So what we're going to zero in on this last bit of instruction, verses 16 through 18. So let me read, though, from verse 12, and you see the whole pattern, how it fits together. Paul writes to them, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And he begins this. This is how we're to treat each other. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, that is, those who are living in disobedience to the clear commands of God, Encourage the faint-hearted, quite literally small souls, someone who has not yet developed the capacity to, to go through the, the, the things that God brings us through, uh, be encouraging to them. And, and those two words, admonish and encourage, are very distinct. The word admonish means to get into someone's face. In other words, face-to-face, uh, bringing them to see the issue. Whereas encouragement means to come alongside of someone, encourage them in their walk with Christ. And so he says, uh, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Don't you love that one? Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And then our, our passage we're going to look at is, he's talking about circumstances. What do we do in response to circumstances of life, especially those we don't like? Well, he says these three things. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So God's will for you in Christ Jesus, no matter what the circumstances is, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. We are to rejoice always. Unceasing joy. We're to have unceasing joy. What a command. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people, get this, blessed are you. That is, you have been blessed by God and it produces happiness, rejoicing. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, that is, if we stop rejoicing exceedingly, we become like salt that has become tasteless and worthless. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. They actually would throw salt that was no longer salty upon the road to, to keep it steady, the way we put asphalt on the road. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That expression is incredible. It actually means something like jump for joy, be extremely joyful when you're persecuted for Christ. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, if slander is to make us dance, what are, we to, what are we to fret over? What is there to fret over? If even the worst of things should cause us to rejoice greatly because we are being persecuted. Now, I got to admit, I've never been persecuted. Uh, the closest I ever came to it was some guy got upset with with uh, me and my uh, class I was teaching and we had gone to a restaurant and sitting in a back room by ourselves but then they let a guy in <clears throat> sat at a table close to us and he heard us in translating the New Testament and he got really upset why do you Christians have to drag this stuff out into the public it was ruining his dinner that's the closest I've ever come to being persecuted but what, what Jesus says is when you are, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. As I was thinking about this, I was wondering, I wonder if that's why some of us are so unhappy. We just never experience persecution for the name of Christ. It's a privilege. Uh, the uniqueness of Christian joy lies in its emergence under the most adverse circumstances. It's when things are going really bad that we are told to rejoice and so this, this should tell us something, that God wants us to be marked by rejoicing and joy, that he is in charge, he is in control. And Galatians chapter 4 tells us why, is that our circumstances, our joy is independent of our circumstances. Our joy is based upon what's going on above. And in the power of the Spirit, he opens our eyes to the glory of what is actually taking place, that God is on the throne, and he has sent his Son into the world. And so we can rejoice, even when it seems like most people would think, boy, you guys should be really unhappy. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardship, in distresses, in beatings, beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, 
in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit. In other words, when things are really bad, we can rejoice and be glad. Maybe we need to learn how to uh, jump for joy and be extremely joyful when it seems like that things look so bad for us. You may rejoice. That's the implication of this. It's okay for you to rejoice. It's not sin for you to rejoice. It's sin for you not to rejoice because you've been commanded to rejoice and be glad. The uniqueness of Christian joy lies in, in the emergence under the most adverse circumstances so we, we can be in the worst of circumstances and experience the joy of the Lord if we get our mind in the right place. Who's in control? Who is orchestrating the things in your life? Who is it that oversees all of life? You, you've all heard this song, um, He's a Good, Good Father. Chris Tomlin sort of wrote Actually, Chris Tomlin didn't write it, but he's the one who made it popular. The guy that wrote it is also a singer. This is how he wrote the song. He's a house church pastor. He has about 50 people in his congregation. And there was a young lady who was... Um, had cancer and they had been praying for her and interceding for her but it was getting worse and worse she was given a death sentence and she was very 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 discouraged and so he said they gathered around her and he put his hand on her and he just started singing that he had never even heard it before he just started singing it to her the chorus he's a good good father that's who he is and that song became one of the most popular songs uh, played on the radio for Christians because it's a glorious truth. He's a good, good father. And he loves you. And that's who you are. That's your identity. You're, you are people who are loved by God. Now sometimes we can't stand each other. But God loves us at our worst. That's what he's done. He's loved us at our worst. He sent his son into the world to love us when we the, were the most needy. That's what Romans 5.8 says, for example, that God is, is continually demonstrating his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can rejoice over that because we are loved by God. This is a common theme in New Testament writings. Uh, it's, it's talked about all the time. Paul refers to this continually. And uh, in fact, listen to this, Acts 541. So, so they went on their way from the presence of the council. This is after they were being beaten. They were beaten and cast out because they were being told to stop preaching the gospel. And they couldn't stop preaching the gospel. So, so it says they went out on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Isn't that amazing? You see, that's what faith in Christ produces. It produces us in us this willingness, this joy to be identified with Christ Jesus, even to the point of persecution. Now, these Thessalonians had already suffered for Christ. That's the amazing thing about it. They're probably a couple months old, maybe three months old in the faith, a church has been established. Paul has to leave because he's driven away. And so when he gets down south, he writes to them immediately to give them these instructions and to encourage them. And so because they had been, they had been in persecution, he writes back and he tells them, you followed our example. 
you obeyed Christ at the cost of being persecuted just like we did. And so you've imitated the very thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has told us to do. And so they had, they had experienced persecution. Of course, Paul had too, had been driven out. The challenge is always an independent of our circumstances. That is the, the challenge to rejoice. It hasn't have anything to do with your circumstances. Are things going poorly for you? Well, I told you last Sunday morning I'd gotten this phone call <clears throat> that a third woman in our church had a heart attack. It turned out they were wrong. He was wrong. She didn't have a heart attack. She had another problem, but it was, it was, she, was in the, she was in the hospital for several days. When I got news that my daughter had a heart attack, it's like you want to be able just to be depressed. But instead, what he calls us to do is to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because we are in his hands. What is he going to do with this difficulty in our life? In fact, you remember, I've quoted this several times in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul says, uh, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to us. We were tested beyond our ability to bear. We despaired of life. Ever been tested like that? We didn't think you could live any longer? I've talked to people like that. That they wanted to die because they couldn't stand life any longer. I've talked to believers who felt like that. But the fact is, the reason to live is because he is our life. So this isn't this isn't carnal joy. This isn't like going to parties in order to boost your joy or presumptuous joys or fanatical joy or even exhilaration over good things that God's doing for you. It's rejoicing in the midst of suffering. That's crazy, isn't it? But that's what he's called us to do. And he's, and he's promised us that the Spirit of God will produce in us the reason why we rejoice. Remember in, in Galatians 4, what he says there is that the Father not only made us sons of God, adopted us into his family, but because we were adopted, we are sons of God, he sent this, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. In other words, he wants us to always be controlled by what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. That we are beloved of God. We are children of God. We are sons of God. And so in the midst of the worst of circumstances, we can rejoice if we get our mind on the truth. If we get our mind on the truth that what has been revealed to us in his word, this is how God feels about you. He's a good, good father. He has blessed you richly. And sometimes he even blesses us in the midst of the worst of circumstances that we experience the great blessings that he has for us. And so the joy that we have flows from something that's above and untouched by our circumstances. Aren't you glad of that? Because I I know myself, I spend so much time thinking about how I can arrange my life so I won't have any trouble. You ever do that? You're, you're planning, you know, you're planning your future and you're trying to figure out how can I go through this without having any trouble? When God says, oh, I want to use trouble in your life. And what I want you to do is to rejoice always, to have unceasing joy. That's quite a command, isn't it? This is a command of God. You know, we're not under the law. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the, the Ten Commandments as a law that would give us acceptance with God. 
But God has given his children commandments. This is one of his commandments. And what we need to notice is it's impossible. So the only way we could ever obey this commandment is if the Spirit of God were to fill our hearts with joy in who Christ is in the midst of the worst of circumstances. And it, this joy is, independent, is, is dependent not upon you, but upon the Holy Spirit. Can the Spirit of God produce joy in the lives of, God, of Christ's people? Yes. I wanted you to say yes, but I'll say yes for you. Absolutely. He can produce joy in our hearts. Now, Galatians 4 is a wonderful passage. He talks about the gospel there and talks about justification and adoption and the spirit of adoption. But the fact is that your joy is above and beyond all of your circumstances. What's going to happen to you? What are you facing? I was talking to a man the other night, and he was telling about the, the uh, surgery that he's looking at. He's going to have to have surgery on his back. And uh, if you've ever talked to people who've had surgery on their back, you know that uh, that's, a, that's a painful thing to go through, isn't it? And it's a painful thing to recover from. But we can enter into those situations and rejoice greatly because, not because we got the greatest doctor in California or the United States or the world, but because God is our Father. Christ is our Savior. The Holy Spirit is our helper who lives in us to encourage us and to give us joy unspeakable and full of glory. So we rejoice in the Father and the Son. Remember what John said in in 1 John, the first chapter. He says, I'm writing to you that your joy may be made full. He actually says so that our joy might be made full because your joy will be made full. I want you to learn to walk in the light. What's walking in the light? It's walking in fellowship with Christ. He's the light. And when you walk in fellowship with him, even though there's darkness all around you, you're in the light and you can experience the joy of fellowship with Christ. Um, All of us have heard stories about Christians who've been imprisoned. We had a, a fellow one time, a Chinese believer who came to Valley Bible and he had spent 20 years in prison in China. And he told some of the stories of things that happened to him. And he said the most amazing thing was there were times when they beat him mercilessly and he couldn't feel any pain. And he said, I knew for sure that that was the work of Jesus Christ, that he was right there with me. And you know what? He's right here with you in all of life and all of circumstances. In the greatest disappointments in life, Christ is with you. And so you're commanded to rejoice always. Now, the second thing he says, the second commandment is pray without ceasing. That's that's, uh, no easier than rejoice always, is it? Pray without ceasing. Here's how we can cultivate joyful attitude, even in times of trials, is we pray. We pray without ceasing. The word without ceasing, that's translated without ceasing, means constantly reoccurring prayer. Every time you stop and communicate with your Father because you have confidence that he hears you. We're told in the book of Hebrews that we have free access to the throne of God, to the throne of grace, where God is. We have free access. We don't have to knock on the door. We just have to address him. We just seek him. We just come to him and call out his name. What's his name? Father. That's his name for you. That's his favorite name 
that he wants his children to utter when they come to him. Father. And here he says we should pray without ceasing. Pray incessantly, which means pray constantly, reoccurring prayers. You need to come before the Father and ask him to meet the needs of your life. Sometimes we suffer through things and we never turn to him. We never go to him and say, Father, use this in my life. I don't understand it. I don't want to go through this. But I pray that you would use this in a profound and deep and life-changing way. Use this in my life. The only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worth seeking after. The writer of the, the Psalms, one of the, probably mostly David, talks con- incessantly about having the praise of God on our lips. That we use our mouths to praise him. And when you're in the worst of circumstances and you're praising God, it glorifies him. And it glorifies him in your own heart. It lifts your spirit. You get your eyes above the circumstances and upon this God who has set his love upon you, this good, good father. This is both a promise and a command. Pray without ceasing. You can pray without ceasing. That's, that's a promise. And he hears you. He hears you when you pray. And yet it's also a command that we are to pray incessantly. I thought of this real radical way to uh, deal with our challenge with the building. What if, I was telling my friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, I said, you know, this sounds like a crazy idea, but what do you think? Because they've built a huge, monstrous uh, facility. I said, what if our people would begin to incessantly pray to God to supernaturally provide everything we need to, to finish this project? You think he might say, you fools, why'd you ever get yourself in this mess in the first place? You think he would say that? No. No, you, can, you, can, you have his ear. So I'm, I'm appealing to you who have the ear of God. If you have Jesus Christ living in you, you have the spirit living in you, you have access to God through Christ. And so I'd like to challenge you, pray incessantly that God would do the supernatural and provide for us what we need in order to accomplish this task. Think of the implications of this, that he's given this promise to us that we can pray over and over and over again. We can keep coming back to the Father. Now, we're told not to use vain repetition as the pagans do. That is... We don't want a prayer wheel where we just keep turning the same words over and over and over and over again. We want to come to the Father and talk to Him like a Father. And we appeal to Him as a Father. We desperately need your help. We need your help. Uh, when, when, when we have needs in our life, it, it precipitates, prayer, precipitates prayer, doesn't it? I can remember... Uh, when my grandson was born, I had a little boy, a grandson who's, well, he's not a little boy anymore. He's 17 years old. He's tall and, and lanky, but he can't walk and he can't talk. And I still remember when my daughter realized that he had a disability and how crushing it was. And I still remember how God worked in a miraculous way, not to heal him, but to fill her heart with Joy and expectation that God was in charge of her life and his life. God's in charge of your life. Whatever you're facing today, God is in charge of your life. And he's your father. And so when you come to him, you can ask him knowing that he wants to hear. James is the one who said, you have not because you ask not. 
But then he adds, and when you, when you do ask, you ask to, to squander it on your own desires. Well, we pray to a father that we want to be glorified in the way that he answers prayer. It's wonderful when he is glorified by answering our prayers. And when I, when I look out over you, I think about how God has answered prayer in the past that we were so desperate for, for God to work and make and do the supernatural. And he's done it over and over and over again. And so praying without ceasing is a privilege, but it's also a command. Calvin is one who said that praying brings joy. He said it produces a calm and composed mind as you come before the Father and lay yourself before him and make your requests to him because he's your father. Who can you call father in this world? I had a wonderful dad, passed away some years ago, but he was, he was a warm-hearted, loving man. I could go to him anytime under any circumstances and bear my heart to him and he wanted to hear me. Isn't it wonderful to have a father in heaven who actually is prejudiced toward you? And when you open your voice and you say, Father, he actually listens to what you're asking. He actually cares and is an almighty God. And so we come to him and we pray. This is how we we handle adversities and injuries in life is we go to the Father and pray. Sometimes they're in emergency situations. That's all we have time for is just to lift up a request. Lord, save me. But he cares. And he knows your voice. I know the voice of my children. When, uh, when I hear them speak to me, I know exactly who's talking to me. I know their voice. And it's a huge privilege for it to be addressed by children who say, Dad, could you do this? Can you help me with this? To, to, to think that they actually have confidence to approach you and ask for your help. See, that's a wonderful thing. And we have a Father in Heaven who actually loves to hear your prayers. He loves for you to come to Him and appeal to Him. So by prayer, we unburden our anxieties by casting them on the Father, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5. We, we cast our anxieties on Him. How do we do that? By telling Him what we're anxious about. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. That's casting our anxieties on Him. And He says when we cast our anxieties on Him, He will lift us up at the proper time. So we... We come to him and we pray. We bring them our knees before him. All of us are familiar with uh, Philippians 4, 6. There's an order there. As we come before him, the order of it is this, that we first of all worship. The word for prayer there is worship. We worship him. We supplicate, which means we bear our heart and tell him what we need. What are your felt needs? And then we give thanksgiving. And he says the result is peace, joy. We have the joy that we've told the one, the only one in the universe who can do anything about our situation. And so we appeal to him. And then the third command that he gives, but let me quote uh, 
of Philippians 4, 6, in case I'm just assuming you all pray that all the time. But this is what Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart. You'll fill your heart with joy. Fill your heart with peace. But the last command is this, in everything give thanks. This seems even more impossible than the first two. It doesn't say give thanks for everything, but he says give thanks in everything. Regardless of my circumstance, regardless of what we're going through, we can give God thanks in the midst of that. You know, you can't give God thanks. I didn't give God thanks for, for allowing my daughter to have a heart attack. But I could thank him in the midst of it because I knew whose hands she was in. And so we can give him thanks in the midst of all things. We must always mingle thanksgiving with our desires. It's okay to sigh and lament and feel bad, but it must be in such a way that the will of God is more acceptable to us than our own. Um, I told you about Steve Flesher telling me that when he was so discouraged, his wife looked like she was near death, and he said he began to call out to God and, and complain to God why he would allow this, why he would allow this man in his, I think he was in his 30s then, or maybe he's in his early 40s, and it was his fifth child, and she was dying. And he said, I was so angry, I couldn't believe God would do this to me, take my wife when I need her so desperately. But right in the midst of his complaining, he said, I, I, all of a sudden I said, I realized who I was talking to, I said, oh, Father, not my will, your will be done. <laughs> it's always good to quote Jesus, you know. Because that's what Jesus said to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he appealed to him, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me without me drinking it. But then he immediately stops himself. In fact, this is an unusual construction in the original language. That in the middle of a sentence, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. You can trust God's heart. You can trust God's judgment. I know a lot of wise people, but I'm telling you, nobody compares with the God, the all-wise God. Nobody compares to him. He has great, great wisdom, immeasurable wisdom, all wisdom. And so whatever you're going through, whatever you face, you can be confident that the all-wise God knows what he's doing. And he says, for this is a will for you in Christ Jesus. He justifies all of these brief commands by saying, the, the commands that we were giving here, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks are a vital part of God's will for us in Jesus. I've had teaching at uh, Grace School of Theology in the Cornerstone. I've had a lot of young guys tell me, I just don't know what God's will for me is. Well, what would you tell them based upon this text? You would tell them God's will for you is that you, that you rejoice in everything, that you pray without ceasing, and that you give thanks to the Father for what he's doing in your life. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You know, these three commands penetrate the innermost recesses of our personality, right down to the very heart of who we are. This is the spring out of which all of life flows. And what he wants to do is he wants to put us right and keep us right, help us to stay right in the depths of our heart 
so that we experience the blessings of God flowing out of us. Remember what Jesus said in John seven thirty seven, in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, when they, every day they would take water from the Pool of Siloam down to the temple and pour it out and, and celebrate the fact that God had been faithful to his people during their wilderness journey and provided water for two million people for 40 years. Is that impressive? And so they celebrated every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is there. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, when we think that they didn't do this particular ceremony, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, you get the implication of that. It's not just that it's going to satisfy you. It's going to be like you're a fresh drink of water to fellow believers. I had a friend, uh, Bob Hamilton. He was on the board at Grace School Theology, and he always used to say, one swallow does not a summer make. I thought he was talking about a swallow of water. And have you ever heard that phrase? Aristotle said that. I, I didn't know that until just a couple of days ago because I was trying to figure what did he mean by this? One swallow does not a summer make. And he said it to me a hundred times. I never understood what he was saying. Aristotle was saying just because the swallows are immigrating back, they always did in the summer, seeing one swallow doesn't mean that this is summertime. And sometimes we go, through, we go through situations that look so bleak and so bad and we think, oh man, what's going to happen now? It's all over. No, let me tell you, God is still on his throne. And he still reigns on high. And he still loves his people. He's still a good, good father. That's who he is. And you're loved by him. That's who you are, believer. You are people who are loved by God. And so he's commanded us to love one another. This is what he's called us to, to love each other. Remember, remember when uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus? He says, what do I need to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he says, well, I've kept all the commandments from childhood. I'm telling you something. To love one another is a more difficult and a greater commandment than all the Ten Commandments, except for the first couple about how we are to treat God. It's impossible. How can we love each other? Jack Miller used to say, when my enemies are saying bad things about me, they're telling you half-truths because I'm twice as bad as they know. And that's true, isn't it? It's really true. Because we are objects of His grace and we are being changed. The reason we're being changed is we need to be changed. The reason He's working in our lives is we need Him to work in our lives and transform us into the image of Christ. Because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And you can look around the room and we can see each other. We know we're not there yet. But we are loved by a Father and He tells us that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and that we should give thanks in everything. So let me give thanks right now. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a people who are in such desperate need of your help. We are in such a desperate need, Father, for you to work in our lives, for you to use the circumstances of our lives to draw us close to you that would precipitate prayer and thanksgiving and rejoicing.
we confess to you that we are wrong for not rejoicing. We are wrong for not praying incessantly. We are wrong for not giving thanks in all things. And so we repent of that and we ask you, oh God, to fill our hearts with the awareness of who you really are and what you've really called us to do and to be. That we would be a people who know that we are loved by God and out of our hearts will come praises of you. You are glorious. Thank you so much for being so patient with us, for loving us through all kinds of circumstances. And so we look forward to your work in us now. We pray that your hand would be upon us, that the Spirit of God would fill us with joy and anticipation that we might praise you for all of life and all eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.